Amen. Well, this is one of those weeks where the uh, message is coming first, and then we'll have uh, communion in our song service at the end today. So we are in uh, a series through the Gospel of Mark that we're calling Servant and Savior. And today we come to Matthew or Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. We're calling today's message the House of Prayer. Well, it was back in February of 2013 that Great Britain's Food Standards Agency closed a slaughterhouse and a processing plant after the investigators found horse carcasses had been used to make beef burgers and kebabs all across Britain. Well, a month later, Swedish furniture giant IKEA was drawn into the food labeling scandal as authorities said they had deducted uh, detected horse meat in those frozen meatballs that were labeled as beef and pork that were sold in 13 European countries. Well, as this scandal grew, the uh, European horse meat scandal uh, spread, and the story then took a rather unexpected twist. When officials in Iceland heard about this scandal with horse meat in beef products, they decided to start testing all the products in Iceland. Well, they found out the same thing wasn't happening there. The Icelandic meat inspectors didn't find any horse meat. But one brand of locally produced beef pies left investigators stumped. It contained no meat at all. Instead, it appeared to be some kind of vegetable product disguised as beef. And so one of the lead inspectors said, that was the peculiar thing. It was labeled as beef pie. It should be beef pie. I thought, that's an interesting story. And I thought it fits well into our message today because we're going to see it today in our text that Jesus wants his followers to reflect their labeling. If we say we're his, we really need to be his. So we want to talk about that today. So let's begin in... Uh, verse 11 of Mark chapter 11. And our, our text today comes after the events of, of uh, what we call Palm Sunday. We looked at that last week. And so back in verse 11, it said, Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. And so I, I want to just focus for a moment on that phrase, looked around. That means that the Lord of the temple he came in and he examined everything very closely. And then that night he left Jerusalem, took his guys with him, and they went to the neighboring suburb of Bethany where the disciples spent the night with, with Mary, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. That was about two miles outside of the city. Well, let's continue in our text today, picking it up in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And so after cursing that fruitless fig tree, the Messiah, who is on his mission towards Jerusalem, he wastes no time heading into the city. And so we'll pick it up in the text again in verse 15. And so they came to Jerusalem, 
And Jesus entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teachings. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And so, in the text here, when it says Jesus entered the temple, that's talking about when he comes into the large outer courtyard. That would have been known as the court of Gentiles. The word literally is is ethne. We get our word ethnic from it. So it's the court of the nations. And this was the area where non-Jewish people were allowed to come and to pray and to praise the Almighty God. That was by God's design. It was a a walled, marble-paved section on the south side of the temple. It was a huge area, about three football fields long and around 250 yards wide. So it was a huge area. And the temple, of course, was a beautiful and amazing uh, facility. It was huge. It was 35 acres in size, gleaming, covered with with gold and marble, built as as a grandiose gift to the Jews as a tribute to King Herod who in his arrogance wanted everybody to to think of him when they saw the temple rather than the Lord. It took 46 years for them to finish building this magnificent temple, this huge, beautiful building. And everything in the temple symbolized something. It was there by design, and it was used to help communicate God's power, God's purposes, including this large, the largest of all the courtyards, the court of the Gentiles, there to invite people in to worship God. And so when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem with his guys, he makes a beeline for the temple, and it says he comes into that courtyard, the court of the Gentiles, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. That word, driving out, literally means to eject, to force out with violence. It's the same word that's often used when Jesus, uh, when Jesus casts out demons. He drives out demons out of people. And so here he is, driving out those who are selling and buying and the money changers out of the temple courtyard. Many of those people wanted Jesus, desired Jesus. When he came in, last week we looked at that, when he rode in on that donkey, their great desire was that Jesus would raise up an army and that he would attack the Romans and set up his earthly kingdom there in that very temple. But instead, Jesus launches a surprise attack, not on the Romans, but he attacks the organized religion of the day. Like an Old Testament prophet, Jesus is acting out a parable. Only he's not acting. He is indignant. He's irate. He's upset. This wasn't the first time that Jesus has been angry. You might remember back in Mark chapter 3 when he is addressing the religious leaders. It says he looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. This was also not the first time that he had cleared the temple out. 
at the beginning of his ministry, about three years prior to the point that we're at now, Jesus came into that same temple, and at that time, he created a whip, and he used it to clear out that marketplace once before. Jesus says, my temple should be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. That is a harsh, harsh indictment, isn't it? against the religious busyness and the spiritual commercialism that's going on in the temple. And the words are all the more sharp because they come from the mouth of Jesus himself. And why is that? Because he desires prayer. My father's house should be a house of prayer. God is not looking for religious activity. He's not looking for our busyness. His desire is that we would worship him with hearts of prayer. So let's just talk about the the events that are going on here. What's so offensive to Jesus about what's happening in the courtyard there? The money changers and others. Really, they're they're there, it seems, to provide a, a practical service, right? They're making things relevant for the people coming to worship. People are traveling from all over the known world to the temple. Many of them are coming from long, long distances. It's dry, it's hot. And they have to travel to the temple. If they're wealthy, they ride donkeys. But most of them come on foot from that great distance. And it was impractical then to bring with them a goat or a sheep or even a pigeon to offer as a sacrifice at the temple. And then often they're coming from foreign lands and so their their money, their currency is the coin of whatever region they're coming from. And so it was a matter of convenience to provide right there in the temple grounds a currency exchange as well as stalls to buy animals to offer as a sacrifice. It served the needs of the people. But Jesus will have none of it. You know, often we take this passage and we kind of use it to uh, attack any form of buying or selling within the the walls of the church building, kind of build a doctrine around that. But that's really not what Jesus is objecting to right here. I think his objection was the way that we are tempted to reduce religion to a commercial transaction, to a business deal, rather than a relationship of trust and love. Don't you think that Jesus should be offended by the idea that that a relationship with God is merely an exchange? I sacrifice this, you provide that. Really, that's that's what paganism is. It's, It's what the prophets of the Lord so vigorously denounced for hundreds, hundreds of years up to the point of Jesus. The substituting of a a religion of mere externals for a religion of the heart. As early as the reign of King Saul, which was 2,000 years prior to this time of Jesus, and almost 100 years before there ever was even a, a temple to begin with, we read these words in 1 Samuel 15, 22. Samuel speaking on behalf of the Lord. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. You see, friends, what God wants is you and me. Before he wants our sacrifices, he wants our attention. Before it's about giving anything out of our hands or getting anything back from his hands, it's about seeking his face with our face. 
the contrast to religion as a transaction where we try to give something to God in order to get something back, the contrast to that is prayer. That's our topic today, the house of prayer. The opposite of faith as a series of deals where we make uh, rituals that we observe or, or deals that we make with God. The opposite of that is faith as a friendship with God that we enter into and nurture. Jesus says, my temple should be a house of prayer. To live in the place of prayer, the house of prayer, as opposed to just making a visit there now and then, means that we learn to pay attention to God. We learn the secret of praying without ceasing. So that always, in our comings, and our goings, there is a communication with God, the God who wants to be very near to us. I found this distilled, simplified definition of prayer. It says, prayer is paying attention to God. Prayer is paying attention to God. It, it means being, being mindful of God, more mindful of God than we are of the people around us, heeding his presence and his desires above everything else in our life. That's what prayer is. It is paying attention to God. Jesus says, my temple should be a house of prayer. He wants us to learn the practice, the art of attentiveness, of paying attention, so that we are as focused on him Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday as we are when we are in the church building on Sunday. You know, it's not by accident that both Jesus and Paul describe the true temple of God as our bodies, no longer a building in Jerusalem. The temple of God is our bodies. It is the gathering of God's called out people. And so this temple, my body, your body, it needs to become a house of prayer. My temple shall be a house of prayer. Prayer is paying attention to God. And so for our, the remaining time this morning, I, uh, I want to explore with you three aspects of prayer as it, as it impacts followers of Jesus like you and me. So let's first consider that prayer bears fruit. Prayer bears fruit. Let's go back to the cleansing of the temple. That morning, as Jesus headed to the temple, the text says he was hungry, and he went to pick a, a fig off of a fig tree. But the tree had no figs. Now, Mark also tells us in verse 13, it was, there was no figs because they weren't in season. So what does Jesus do? He curses that tree. And then immediately after that, he goes into Jerusalem and he cleanses the temple. And when he's done there, on the way back out of town, as they're going back to Bethany, Peter notices the fig tree that they pass going back out has withered. It's withered away from its roots upward. And Peter is very surprised. Now, he doesn't ask Jesus about prayer. In fact, he really doesn't ask Jesus anything at all. But Jesus sees this as a teachable moment. And so he decides to teach his disciples about prayer based on this fig tree. Let's look again at the text, beginning in verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. 
Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Well, let's go back to that encounter for just a moment. At first glance, doesn't that seem kind of unfair that Jesus curses this tree for failing to produce figs when it's not even the season for figs? We call this an acted parable. What's going on here? Jesus is acting out a parable. All through the Gospels, we've seen, as we've traveled through Mark, that Jesus uses parables, doesn't he? He told lots of parables, parables about wheat fields and vineyards and orchards, and always these stories have some sort of familiar details, and they also work out as kind of metaphors. Wheat or, or fruit represented a, a wholesome response to God, and, and weeds represented faithfulness or rebellion. But other times, other times Jesus acts out parables. You know some of those. Like when he walked on the water to show what it meant to overcome the seemingly impossible obstacles of life. When he healed a blind man to show what it meant to overcome darkness and walk in the light. Well here, Jesus enacts a parable and it's about God's judgment on fruitlessness. The point seems to be that all of our compelling arguments for why we lack fruit, we're pretty good about making excuses, aren't we? Well, I don't have any fruit in my life because, well, I don't have the right skills. I don't have the right abilities. I just don't have enough time. Hey, it's not my season. It's not my season. We can make all the excuses we want, but the truth is those don't carry any weight with God. What does God desire from his people? He desires fruit. He expects fruit. And fruit comes. Fruit comes when we do things his way. Jesus taught in John 15 that we will be fruitful when we abide in him, when we dwell in him, when we remain in him, when we live in closeness to him, that we will become fruitful individuals. That means it comes by paying attention to God. Prayer is paying attention to God. In other words, Jesus took that fig tree and he curses that fig tree as an acted parable to show his disciples and to show us what happens when we fail to abide in him. We could say that faithful, fruitlessness is the result of prayerlessness. When we don't pray, when we don't abide, when we are not paying attention to God, we are not fruitful. Let's consider the, the passage a little bit more. Another thing that's interesting to me is that Peter is very surprised when he sees that tree. Rabbi, look, Peter says, the fig tree you cursed has withered. He seems to be genuinely astonished. Peter didn't see this coming. He's amazed at the, the clear, unmistakable evidence of, of Jesus' power. Now, he was there when the day before Jesus said, may no one ever eat from you again, tree. But then today, voila, it comes to pass. And, and Peter's mind is kind of blown. 
And his surprise surprises me. You know, he's been following Jesus not just for, for three days or three weeks or three months. He's been following Jesus for three years now. And he has seen a multitude of amazing miracles. He's seen Jesus turn water into wine. He's seen Jesus feed a, a giant multitude of people with, with one young boy's lunch. He's seen Jesus heal the sick. He's seen even Jesus raise the dead. Now, we don't have a lot of records of Peter's response in all of those miracles, but rarely, it seems, was he surprised. But then here, at the end of Jesus' earthly mystery, Jesus pulls off what, in light of all of his other miracles, seems kind of small, right? Just a tree. But Peter is amazed. Wow, look at that. It causes me to ask this question. Maybe you can think about this too. Why does God keep surprising us? Why does God keep surprising us? Why does another display of Christ's presence and authority, why does it take us off guard? Have we not seen the power of God enough that it would delight us every time? Have we not seen it enough so that it, that it just doesn't surprise us anymore? You know, there's a great story in Acts chapter 10 where the tables kind of get turned on Peter himself. Peter is in jail, and it looks like he's about to be executed. And so the church gathers to pray for him. And then God dispatches an angel to miraculously deliver Peter out of, out of prison. And so then Peter goes to the house where the church is meeting, and they're praying for him. They're literally praying for him at that moment, and he knocks on the door, and the servant girl comes to answer the door, says, who's there? And when she hears Peter's voice, she gets flustered. She is surprised, surprised that Peter would be there knocking on the door, and she rushes upstairs without, by the way, opening the door to let Peter in. He's still locked out, and she tells everybody who are in the midst of praying for Peter, she says, Peter is standing at the door and knocking. And you know what they say? You think they'd say, hallelujah. It's like God has answered our prayers. Thank you, Lord. But they don't say that. Do you know what they say? They tell the girl, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. And she insists. She says, he's there. And you know what they say? Oh, it must be his ghost. It must be his ghost. They would rather believe in a boogeyman than they would to believe in God. They would rather concoct ghost stories than credit the Holy Ghost for doing a miraculous work in answer to the very prayer that they've been praying. Why are we surprised by God? Why are we surprised by God? I think it's because we don't expect God to do things. We have expectations, but they're not God's expectations. They're our expectations. And I think that's why, why Jesus is using this moment around this fig tree to teach the power of prayer and to help us understand that prayer is grounded in two things, faith and forgiveness. So let's look at both of those. Next, we see that prayer requires faith. Prayer requires faith. Faith, we could say, is the fuel of prayer. And by faith, Jesus says, we can say to this mountain, move, and it complies. Wow. Now, does this, does this mean that prayer is some sort of magic? Kind of seems like that, just at, at first glance. 
Then Jesus goes on to say that we can ask for anything, anything, and as long as we believe, it will be done. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Let's make a note of this, though. As Jesus is saying this to the disciples, he is literally looking at a mountain, the Mount of Olives, right outside of Jerusalem. Actually, the Mount of Olives is a series of four summits, the highest reaches, about 2,500 feet above sea level. And so there is the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem. And as he's talking to the disciples about prayer, imagine him just gesturing to that mountain. And I think he was likely referring to a prophecy. I mentioned this prophecy last week in Zechariah chapter 14. It describes the day of the Lord God Almighty, the second coming of of, of Christ, if you will, when the king returns for his own. And in that passage, it says, on that day, the Lord will stand, where? On the Mount of Olives. He will stand on that Mount of Olives and it will split in two, half tumbling to the north, half to the south. That's important to know. Jesus is not referring to some whimsical, self-serving use of prayer, like like he's our magic spiritual vending machine, and we just put in our requests, and we get whatever we want. Some people take this passage, and they teach that. That is not what Jesus is teaching here. He is telling us that the prayer, the promise of prayer, is the key to every obstacle in our way. Jesus is saying, this is all about the kingdom, his kingdom, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Remember when he taught the disciples, when they asked, teach us how to pray, Lord. That's what he taught them to say. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, Father. At the heart of the life of of faith and prayer is the joining of God in his kingdom's purposes with our heart. If we are truly living a faith-centered, prayer-soaked life, more and more, our life will get pulled into the the grand purposes of God. That's where our focus will be. Not on our self-pity parties, not on the little things that are going on with us, but we will be more and more focused on God's worldwide plan. If we think that, that that prayer is just about harnessing God's power to accomplish what, what I want, my own ends, to fill my own amb- ambitions, then I've got it backwards. Prayer is about training our heart to long for the coming of the King and to play our role in the fulfillment of that promise. Prayer is attentiveness to God. It is as Jesus has said many times, abiding in him, living in him. And as we do that, as we do that, we become more like him and we begin to desire more and more to see his will done more than our own will done. That's why Jesus says here and elsewhere that we can pray our desires in the confidence that God will give us the desires of our heart. That's a pretty amazing promise, but guess what he's doing? He's presuming that we're already living the life of abiding in Jesus. He's presuming that our desires are being shaped and filled by God himself, not by our selfish ambitions, not by by what we want, but what God desires. He's presuming, presuming that we yearn 
for the kingdom, that that is at the top of our prayer list. That's what it means to pray in faith. Author Philip Yancey has this definition of faith. He calls faith paranoia in reverse. You know what paranoia is? Everybody's out to get me. Paranoia in reverse, he says, is what faith is. Uh, a number of years ago, I took a, a group of, of teenagers to a, a, a paintball place. We're going to go and play paintball. And uh, it was an you know, official paintball course and all that. And so before we could go play paintball, we had to meet with the, the referee, the guy in charge. And uh, he gave us this big lecture and instruction on safety beforehand. And he went on and on about all the safety policies that we had to, to follow. You know, I got to have, uh, you know, your, your gun barrel has to be pointed at the ground. You got to keep your finger off the trigger. The trigger lock's got to be on. And, and so he said, out here, outside of the course, he said, out here, there are no enemies. We're all friends. I remember him saying that. Then he said, of course, when you get inside the perimeter, you will discover that your paranoia is real. You have to watch your back at all times. You can't trust anyone. They're all out to get you. So there's paranoia, right? Everybody's out to get me. But I want us to understand this. Faith is paranoia in reverse. God's not out to get me. In the book of Hebrews, it says that one element of faith is to believe that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. And so a simple definition of faith is that it believes God is good. God is good. He's not out to get us. He is for us. He's not against us. And though the path sometimes appears to be dangerous or narrow or difficult, it is the path that leads to life. And so we have faith in that path because we understand that God is good and he desires good for us. Don't you wish that we could see the, the end from the beginning? You know, how, how a situation will, will turn out before, it, before we get there. But you know what? By faith, we already know. We already know the end from the beginning. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And so we are called to pray, believing. Pray in the faith that the kingdom that we long for is going to be delivered. That's what keeps us going that the mountain will be split in two. Do you believe that? That's what Jesus wants us to focus on. The Lord will stand on that mountain and he will return to us and take us with him. You know, that word believe that we so often use. We talk about what we believe. We have that English word believe. It comes from an old English word. The, the root word is beloved. And over time, it's come to, to be believed, but it's beloved. To believe is more than just to, to you know, believe something up here, this kind of academic idea of, okay, I, I believe these facts about God. No, to believe is to give our heart. It is to beloved God, to fall in love and then to live out of that love, allow that love to fuel us. Walk with God's purposes. Walk according to God's plans. That is what true faith is. And then finally, prayer requires forgiveness, Jesus says. We talk about this living in, in God's house of prayer. It requires belief or faith, and it requires forgiveness. I think that Jesus makes this plain in this passage because it could be 
easy to interpret his actions and his words, you know, cursing the fig tree, clearing out the temple kind of in a violent way, casting down mountains. That all sounds pretty violent, doesn't it? As a license for vengeance and violence, and so that's the kind of people we ought to be. It would be easy to, to make that mistake with his words about prayer, as if prayer is some sort of a secret weapon to get whatever we want, especially on the backs of people that we don't like. But again, I want you to think about that Mount of Olives looming in the distance and those references from Zechariah's prophecy. Part of that prophecy is that on the day that the Lord returns, it says the enemies of God's people will be destroyed. Well, that prophecy had gained a lot of prominence and and popularity in Jesus' day amongst the Jewish people because the Romans were there. The Romans were occupying their land and the Jews hated that. And so they read prophecies like Zechariah and they savored the idea that God was going to come and humiliate and annihilate their enemies. They felt good about that kind of vengeance that was in their heart because they hated those pagan Romans living in their land. And so they were already praying that that Zechariah prayer, but they were praying it the wrong way. They had the wrong motives. They were praying out of bloodthirstiness, out of revenge. They were, they were praying with, with bitterness and with a joy at gloating over the idea that, as Zechariah describes it, that their enemies would rot. And so they were looking for somebody to come and to make that all come true. But they missed the point of the prophecy The hope at the heart of it is not that it's finally a a payback for the Romans. The hope at the heart of this is that finally God's people, that's us, would come face to face with our God. That is his promise. And that is our hope. And that is finally when his kingdom comes that we understand that whatever he chooses to do with these enemies, that's his business. But what we do with our hearts, that's our business. And our business is to beloved God. And even deeper than that, the deep invitation is to become like God. And our God is a forgiving God. His will is that none should perish. And so we are called to model that in our life. To pray believing and to pray forgiving is to give our hearts to God and to his kingdom. That's what Jesus desires for his followers. Not to get even, not to settle the score, but to see everybody come to know him. I read a story recently about a man who traveled to Russia in the the 1970s. The USSR was was locked tight in the grip of communism and it was in the midst, right, at the height of the Cold War. Russia was a formidable and menacing enemy of the West. And this man's assignment was to visit on behalf of the the National Council of Churches in the United States. His assignment, they sent him there to visit the church in Russia and to bring back a report. And so he went there and he visited the church in Russia And what he found appalled him, and it filled him with contempt. He wrote these words, the church in Russia is useless and pathetic. And then he wrote this, it's just a bunch of little old ladies praying. (laughs) Well, it would take just a little more than 20 years from when he wrote those words 
for the mountain of communism in Russia to fall, to split and fall into the sea. But when it did, God was awesome in his power. If you read about the stories of when the Iron Curtain fell and when missionaries began to enter back into to Russia, God did amazing things and the church exploded all because of the power of some little ladies praying. And so let's not discount little ladies praying. Instead, let's be people that join them. And so friends, my, my challenge to us today is that we would enter into the house of prayer. And that house of prayer would be us. This is our house, God's house. He lives in us. This is our house of prayer. And may his presence in our house cause us to believe more, to forgive more, to love more. And as we pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done, may we live expectantly that God will do mighty and great things according to his plan. And his purpose is not our own. Let's make that our prayer this week. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the power of your word that reminds us of the power of your son. Father, today we think about the power of forgiveness. Lord, as we think about Jesus making his way to Jerusalem in preparation to die. Father, he knew that. And he willingly went anyway. Because that was your plan, and that was your purpose, so that all these years later, Lord, we could come before you. We could be people of faith, people of belief, people of prayer. Lord, forgive us when we take our belief and our faith and our prayer and we become selfish about it. We make it our belief, our faith, our prayers, rather than your belief, your faith, and your prayer. Lord, may, our, may our, our life be rooted in the truths that you have for us. And Lord, may our religion be rooted in the truths that you live out for us through the life of your son, Jesus. Lord, may we follow that path and that model without hesitancy. May we do it with boldness. May we leave behind our own selfish ambition to pursue the path that you have for us. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to enter into a time of communion right now. And communion, one of the purposes of communion is that it serves as a reminder of the reality of Christ in our lives. Sometimes Jesus can become kind of this thing out there, this thing from the pages of this book. But we want to we be reminded of the reality of Jesus today. And so as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, may we reflect on the reality of Jesus. The reality of the sacrifice that he made for you and me. The reality of his invitation to join him in his kingdom. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. And so this morning we invite you to participate in this remembrance, this focus on the reality of Jesus and what he's done for each of us.
As always, there's the four tables, two in the back and two at the front as the music plays. We invite you just to, to make your way to the table and to take your communion. You can take it at the table. You can carry it back to your seat if you'd like. If you have trouble getting to one of the tables, if you just raise your hand, we've got some folks in the back that would be glad to come and 